It's exciting to be here today, isn't it? How grateful, how thankful we can be to our marvelous Heavenly Father who's granted us this opportunity. And yea, what a privilege it is. I would like to express appreciation to Ronald Strong taking care of things here last Sunday. I enjoyed the vacation, my family and I, but we're thankful to be back with you and thankful for your kind wishes and your, your considerations on, on our behalf. But certainly as we come today to think about the church in the midst of a rotten culture, I think that title probably evokes a number of thoughts in our heart and mind, matters that are certainly challenging and tense-filled in many cases. But the Bible, of course, doesn't skirt any issue that's needful for you and me because the Word of God has within it those things that are what you and I need to make sure we get to the golden shores of heaven. The church in the midst of a rotten culture. This opening slide will be one that I hope will at least prompt our thinking in the direction that I would wish the lesson to take this morning. Aren't you thankful that we have passages like John 10 verse 10 in which Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He wants our life here to be filled with those things that are truly satisfying and filling in the greatest of considerations. That is to say, what stretches far beyond the bounds of this fleshly time, but prepares us for an eternity, makes us ready and godly and right. And so it is, as you come to the middle part of that slide, we know that as Christians, when we're assembled together in an occasion like this one, often those matters of the world can seem a bit distant. But we know what tomorrow and Tuesday and, yea, the other days often bring, and we are engulfed by and surrounded by a culture that so often is opposed to the truth of God. Today we're going to discuss a bit about that. I'm sure that in many ways there won't be anything dramatically revealing in the lesson, but a reminding from the Word of God of what the attitude, the approach, the perspective that you and I must adopt. But I do confess that some of the opening images may be a bit disturbing. I say that just to forewarn you. I debated at one point whether to include them or not, but I finally decided to do it. It's not anything that you and I haven't seen and heard about, but it's matters that set before us the kind of culture in which we live. Why don't we begin then with those very ideas? You and I know very well that the present culture in which we live is troubling on a number of hands. That is to say, it in fact not only approves and endorses, but praises even that which is wickedness in the sight of God. May I bring to your mind the following thought. I remember as a young boy looking up to Bruce Jenner. Here was a man who you might remember in the summer of 1976, he was an American hero. The Montreal Olympics were taking place, and as had been the case a number of previous Olympics, an American won the decathlon. It was him. Over years of practice and training, he had honed his skills and was the finest decathlete in the world at that time. America praised him and honored him for the athletic capability and for that for which he stood, a wholesome example of goodness and how you can apply your talents and accomplish great things athletically. But in the springtime of 2015, Bruce Jenner did something else, and he's even more known now for that than he was in 1976, I suspect. He underwent a gender transformation. Today, we're not supposed to call him Bruce anymore. He's Caitlin, 
or maybe I should say, she's Caitlin. And of course, things have been very dramatic in those months since then. Notice some of the things I've included on that slide. After that transformation took place, Caitlin received the Social Media Queen Award as given by Teen Choice Awards. Glamour Magazine declared her as one of the Glamour Women of the Year. Continue the list. Entertainment Weekly labeled her as one of the Entertainers of the Year. Barbara Walters called her the most fascinating person. Time Magazine listed her as being one of the members of the short list of the Persons of the Year. Finally, the most powerful leader in the entire free world made a personal phone call to congratulate her, to praise her courage and her bravery, and to commend her for the great status she had occupied. I say all of that to say this. I promised you an image, and there she is at the top left. She is now a celebrity virtually in our country and worldwide. May I say to you that she's play-acting. She's still a man and will always be. Being a male or female is not just the sexual presentations of the body. God orchestrated the human family in such a way that the characteristic of male involves, as well as female, of course, as well, ways the brain works and ways in which the hormones and matters of the body go about their activities. She's play-acting. And yet the world lifts her up and our culture applauds her, compliments her, commends her, praises her, and in some instances is willing to greatly fight on her behalf to honor what she has done. It's overt wickedness. And our society applauds it, at least in many circles. Back to the previous slide, you'll notice that that isn't the only example. May I be quick to say, society, culture has throughout the ages suffered under perversion. What Bruce did, that perhaps shouldn't be that alarming to us. There have been those throughout the ages who have made choices. We can read about some of them, not that exact one, but others in the Bible. But what about all those things after it? Look at how society has applauded her encouraged her, complimented her, encouraged others to be like her. That's the kind of society in which we live, and that's what's so troubling for the fact there'd be a small segment of those who wish to engage in perversion and wickedness. That by itself isn't alarming, but what about our society who has given her all these awards? The ESPY Awards, of course, you remember the overwhelming scene on Sports Center and otherwise when she was given such a dramatic reception after doing this. We live in troubling times, my friends. We live in a society, a culture that is endorsing this kind of thing. Look at the second example near the bottom of the slide. Again, may I go back to May of 2015. Now this was shortly after... Bruce did what he did. But you remember there was a high school in the state of Colorado. 
And of course, there is a time of very exciting, great excitement when the school year comes to an end and the valedictorian gives his or her speech, and so the salutatorian does as well. And there's a graduation ceremony at that time. Well, interestingly enough, during the course of her valedictory address on that very evening, Emily Bruel, the top right, did that. She gave her speech, and as a part of it, she held a sign at one point, and on one side of it said, Smart! And she was the valedictorian. But as the speech developed and proceeded, there came a time she turned it over, and it was her coming out time. But notice what else happened. What did the audience do? How did the audience react? You'll notice that they gave her a standing ovation. She was praised and honored and complimented for having the courage to do this. My friend, she is to be pitied, and so too is Bruce. They're not to be the objects of our praise. We're to feel sorry for them because they have chosen to live in a way that's apart from and distanced from the honoring of the truth of God. At the bottom of the slides, another example. You remember Michael Sam. His name was all across the news reports and certainly the sports reports not many years ago because here was the first man who was a player in the National Football League. And he was a homosexual. And it was an overwhelming event. And may I say one more time that our president took the time out of a busy schedule to personally call him, not to question him now, but to congratulate him to express to him his appreciation for his courage. May I say again that our culture is seemingly so overwhelmingly encouraging in so many ways of what the Bible condemns. The picture at the bottom is of Michael Sam and his partner. Planned Parenthood could be added to this list. You remember, of course, the scene in which not many years ago there was that rather notable matter in the news in which there were responsible individuals of Planned Parenthood who were making presentations about selling parts of babies. Can you believe it? And yet you and I know that in those months since then there has been in many cases a strong defense of them after all, it's a woman's right to do this, and our culture in so many ways seemingly endorses it. As you look at that slide, may I again say, there's always been those who choose to disobey God. That part is not the surprising or shocking part of this. The part I would ask all of us to consider is, look at how our society is reacting. Giving standing ovations giving these particulars in which this person is worthy of such honor and praise and, and congratulation. May I again say they're all worthy of our pity and they're worthy of our concern, but not our praise. You'll notice in Genesis 19 verses 1 and following, back in the early part of the book of God, we have record there about a society. It was the ancient city of Sodom and what they had done Again, it was a place to be pitied. Or what about that scene in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following? The New Testament city of Corinth had its perversions and its lifestyles that were wicked. One final time, though, what about Galatians 5? 
there's a strong reference to these so-called works of the flesh in which one by one the choices of the human family are highlighted. There are those that choose to pursue fornication and those that choose to pursue murder and those that choose to pursue variance and sedition and the other things listed. May I say, under the control of the devil, men and women are going to make bad choices. They're going to make choices that will cause a great deal of heartache to those who are Christians. What about the church in the midst of a rotten culture? A culture in our land that seemingly is moving in an even greater direction of endorsing the kinds of things we've at least seen quickly this morning. As troubling as it is, what should be your reaction and mine? There perhaps are two extremes. You know that throughout the course of history there have been circumstances in which individuals were so motivated by and so concerned with culture that they separate from it. They live like hermits, if you please. They go far distant and want to have nothing to do with culture as it currently exists. You may recall in the ancient time of Jesus there were those like that. You may recall some of those... And we, of course, have discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls that gave records of a society who had separated from others. They lived by themselves in the caves not far from the Dead Sea. They saw society as evil and they wanted nothing to do with it. And so they separated. Is that what God expects you and me to do? Should it be that you and I pack our bags and head to the northern part of Greenland or something and live near nobody else? I find it fascinating, don't you? That command isn't given or nothing like it in the New Testament. What should the church do in the midst of a rotten culture? Let's study about that for the remainder of our time this morning. As we do that, you'll notice that there's a temptation, a tendency, I suppose, near the bottom of that slide. When culture abandons what's right... What should the church do? Now may I say that's a fundamental question. It's a good one. And it's one that you and I are wrestling with even as we speak and shall be perhaps for the foreseeable future. As we turn the slide, may I invite you to turn to the book of Titus. We'll be spending much of the remainder of our time in the book of Titus this morning, housed in the center of the New Testament. The book of Titus was a little three-chapter book written by the inspired Apostle Paul to his young son in the faith, a gentleman named Titus. And to that young man, Paul gave some very powerful admonition, some strong teaching, and some reminders about culture and what the church ought to do with respect to it. And so as we start this slide, let me present to you a bit of a warning It's as much an observation, I suppose, as anything else. When culture begins to move in the direction away from God, there is obviously a very strong tendency, a temptation, if you will, to change the church so that culture is not so offensive. After all, I like doing what I do, and I like the person I am, but I also want to be a part of the church and... So I'll gradually allow or even encourage the church to change so that I can come and feel good about myself. Case in point, there are a number of religious organizations that have addressed the matter of homosexuality, but in a very different way than what the Bible teaches. For example, the Presbyterian, Anglican, 
And shockingly enough, even, even some segment of the Southern Baptists have now given an endorsement to homosexual preachers and activities of lifestyle like that. Why have they done it? Because you say they want to be comfortable with that, and I still want to hold on to God and sin at the same time, apparently. But we know that isn't possible. There's a strong warning then given throughout the heart of the New Testament, especially as it comes to you and me reminding us that top statement, that tendency that the church has to ultimately change so that culture is not so offensive, that must never, ever be allowed to happen. The Bible never, ever teaches that the church changes to fit culture. It's the church stands strong and true and sound and faithful in the Word of God in the midst of rotten culture. And culture must never, ever be allowed to affect it, to change it, to in any way determine what is held up and applauded by those who are the people of God. Paul told that to Titus. Let's see the way he did it. May I say, the church existed in the midst of a rotten culture. It's not that Paul told Titus, you get out of Creed and you go somewhere where the culture isn't so bad. Titus, you stay in Creed. And you uphold the truth in Crete. And you be strong for the faith in Crete. But you don't leave. Let's start in chapter number 1. First of all, could you appreciate this with me? The culture in Crete was rather rotten. Notice verse number 12. Titus 1, verse 12. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, Evil beasts, slow bellies. How does that sound? Imagine living in a place, living in a culture, wherein the individuals are described by those three adjectives. The people in Crete were liars. They had a propensity, a tendency to say what was not true, maybe for their advantage, maybe for otherwise, but they were known to be liars. That's not all. Evil beasts... What do you think about having someone called an evil beast? What does that mean? You and I know that there are animals and there are human beings and they're not the same. We've highlighted on so many occasions our understanding from the Word of God that humans are not animals. At least they weren't made that way. But they can sure choose to live that way. After all, animals pair up and don't know the appreciation of commitment and loyalty in terms of sexuality, and some humans like to live that way too. That's just one example. These people on Crete, they were known as evil beasts. They chose to pursue the animalistic matters of life. They lived following the sensual pleasures of the human frame. That's what they were known for. Would you be a bit impressed with this. Verse number 12 began by saying, one of themselves, even the people of Crete admitted this. This was not merely some objective appreciation from someone external to Crete. The Cretans admitted they were this way. First of all, they were liars. Secondly, they were evil beasts. Finally, they were slow bellies. Isn't that an interesting turn of word? What does this phrase slow belly mean? To say that they were slow bellies is to mean they were lazy gluttons. 
The people on Crete wanted you to take care of them, but they weren't going to work for it. They wanted to receive, but they weren't in, interested in investing anything to ob obtain it. What would you say then about a description of the Cretan culture? Known for lying, so they didn't appreciate truth. They upheld the animalistic character of the human frame. They were evil beasts. And finally, they were lazy gluttons. And the church was supposed to exist here. What do you think about that? Aren't you impressed then with the fact that as Paul gave these inspired instructions to Titus, Titus, you're living in a hard place. The people, they're evil bees, liars, and slow bellies. But you uphold the truth, and you stand strong for what God has revealed, and you set before them an example of holiness, goodness, and righteousness, and truth in every regard. Let's begin then by noting the following. As Paul gave these instructions to Titus again on Crete, chapter number 1, one of the major sections of it is this one. Reference was immediately given to appointing elders. Now, have you ever thought, as you read that chapter number 1, if this culture was known for liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies, where were you going to find any men who had the qualifications to serve as an elder? How likely was it you were going to find any man or any group of men, you needed at least two, who would not be evil beasts, who would not be slow bellies, and who would not be liars. And yet, that was the charge Paul gave to Titus. Note verse 5 with me again. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. Let's stop there for a moment. Were there things wanting in Crete? Oh, you better know it. We've just described a culture that was rotten. No wonder they needed the church. And may I say, the church doesn't run from culture. The church upholds the truth in the middle of it so that it sets before all others what is true and honorable and right and what God approves. Titus, you said in order what's wanting. This culture needs the truth and it needs the church and it needs a lot of it. So notice how the verse ends. Ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. You'll notice Paul didn't compromise the qualifications of an elder just because society was corrupt and just because it was rotten. In fact, you need men like that so that they can lead this group. And it may start out small, but they've got to be faithful. And they need to be true always, and they can't compromise with culture. It doesn't matter what the Christian culture says. They may approve lying and evil beasts and slow bellies, but the church never will. Isn't that impressive? The church can exist in the midst of a rotten culture, but it is centered on the truth and not culture. What's more? As you notice, lesson number one, from time to time we'll pause in the course of the lesson just to remind ourselves, even in our present culture, about some things so very vital. The church must always uphold truth and oppose what culture affirms it's wrong. That's what the church does. As you and I read our 27 New Testament books, we are constantly reminded, as we have been this morning, Titus, you said in order what's wanting. Culture is always going to get it wrong because they're following the devil. But God will always get it right. 
Timothy was told matters like that, wasn't he? What about the Thessalonian congregation? They too were in the midst of many individuals who had chosen the wrong way, and yet to that congregation, Paul reminded them that your faith has grown, but you've got to stay strong and faithful. You cannot compromise. You and I stand, of course, in the midst of a culture like I described earlier in the lesson today, and many other examples could be listed. I just selected a few. We know that we've got to stay faithful and true to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be many occasions when the devil is going to attempt to make you and I compromise. A circumstance will be presented and there's going to be an argument. One person is going to overwhelmingly assert that that isn't right, but another is going to offer arguments that at least sound enticing. When that kind of thing happens, may we always allow God to be the final spokesman. May we not compromise to the point of shifting what's acceptable. Because when that happens, we've lapsed into error. This church in Crete had a difficult task ahead of it. Titus was told, you make sure to uphold truth. Notice James 4 verse 4, our lesson text of the day today. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That verse, among others, paints a rather dramatic picture. It is not possible to shake hands with culture and shake hands with God at the same time. Culture is always going to be led in a direction that will call into question the fundamental truths of the Word of God because the devil will require it that way. You and I must appreciate then that as faithful Christians with a desire to leave this place and go home to glory, we cannot compromise the truth of God. No matter how overwhelmingly the message of culture may be against it. And may I say, if the current pendulum continues swinging the way it is, you and I may be in the lesser and lesser minority as the years go passingly by. If you think about how things have changed in the last 15 years, what if the changes of the next 15 occur as rapidly as that? Will the time come when the forces of evil seem so surmountingly strong that our place, our very place, is even called into question? My friends, as Christians, we've got to be ready to be faithful unto death if that's what it costs. May I say to you then another verse in Jude verse number 3 is this one. I find it fascinating, don't you, to recollect what passage, what idea was presented. Contend earnestly for the faith. And that word contend means to labor on behalf of, to fight for. It may not be easy to live a faithful Christian life if our culture continues to move as strongly against it as it seems to be. But just like it was in Crete, it can be done. And you and I must. This opening lesson then has been this one. Why don't we proceed then to notice Romans 1.32. The last verse of that opening chapter of the Roman letter. You know with me that in that location, in that place, we have an extensive listing of choices the Gentile nations had made. Choices that were opposed to God. They had lifted high and chosen to pursue the creature more than the Creator. And as a part of that, a lengthy list of their sins was given. I won't read the fullness of that list, but it's the last verse. 
that in many ways is so challenging. I'll just ask you to highlight some of the things in there. Verses 26, 27, and 28, homosexuality is included. Verse number 29, things like murder, malignity, deceit. Verse 30, haters of God, boasters, disobedience to parents. All of that list concludes like this in verse 32. All of these sins are such that, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I would submit to you that one of the greatest threats to the church is housed in that very passage. I suspect that you and I as faithful Christians, we're always going to understand murder's wrong and we're always going to know very well that homosexuality is opposed to the will of God. But you'll notice that verse doesn't just say that those who commit those things are wrong. It's those who have pleasure in them. In other words, if I don't oppose them, if I'm willing to uphold their hands, even though I may not be a homosexual myself, if I defend their right to exist as being right before God, I'm just as guilty as they are. Therein lies the greatest problem for the church. That one by one, over the course of time, we gradually compromise. And in order to not make a fuss, I just don't say anything, or in fact, I speak in such a way that I don't condemn it. Then I'm just as guilty as they are. And therein lies the great challenge that faces the church. Paul told Titus, you've got to hold up to the truth. And so it was. Notice how Titus 1 ends, the last two verses of that chapter. Titus chapter 1, the last two verses. You'll notice with me on that occasion. It says, "Under the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They, they profess that they know God. Stop right there. But there were liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies in this place. But they professed to know God. What was the actual truth of the matter? But in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate. As we've already studied today, there are individuals in our world who want to pursue and at least defend the right of others to be homosexual if they want to be. Or perhaps defend the, other, the right of others to be transgender or otherwise if they want to be. But if I defend their right as being right before God, then I'm just as guilty as those who engage in that. Paul said, these that profess that they know God in works they deny Him. They're hypocrites. And not only that, they're abominable, disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. That's strong language. Do you and I gain a sense that for Titus to remain faithful and for that congregation to be strong in Crete, they had to withstand the forces of culture and stand strong on the faith even in the midst of those forces? May you and I appreciate that same charge given to us today. Now perhaps it's fair to say, as you come to the bottom of that slide, the opening chapter of Titus has set before us a rather powerful consideration. May I say to you that segment two of this lesson will be next Sunday morning. I hope you'll continue studying with me about 
the church in the midst of a rotten culture. As we do that, we're going to look at Titus chapters 2 and 3 next time. What else did that church need to appreciate and what else was to be a vital part of their understanding? As you and I come to this part in the service today, may I say to you, the opening images may have been troubling, but they're the facts of our current culture. There are those who lift up the hands and applaud this wickedness. You and I are living in a time when the forces against the church may become very, very strong. All of us, aren't you thankful to have the Bible? That we can uphold this, even though culture won't agree with it. And even though often the forces are insultingly presented against it, it doesn't change what it says. And you and I can lovingly rest in the promises, rewards, and powers that it has within it. Today, aren't you thankful to be a Christian? Somebody who recognizes there's a world beyond this one. And in fact, just as Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? To uphold sin and wickedness and evil here and then to leave this place and open one's eyes in eternity like the rich man did. Sin isn't worth it. The low price of sinful living is just not worth it. May you and I be faithful and as the Pippin congregation never compromising the truth of God, always upholding it, even in the midst of oppressing odds against us, it doesn't change our approach and it doesn't change that which we appreciate. It might be there's someone in the audience today who would wish to make a public response to the gospel call of invitation. You realize that that invitation is something extended by God. And it's worded, of course, by Jesus. And it's extended in such a way that He wishes all to be saved. Those people who endorse the things we've studied today, God wants them to be saved, but they can't be saved upholding those things. God wants them to repent. He wants them to believe the truth. And He wants them to come in faithful obedience to His Word. And only then, only then, will they be forgiven of their sins. But that same requirement on their behalf is the same one God's given to us. There is no respecter of persons with God, Romans 2.11 Today, if you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you are in a position, you're willing to repent of your sins, whatever they may have been, and then make a verbal confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah, you then could be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, baptized, and you could rise to walk in newness of life with all those sins forgiven. If you haven't taken care of that today, why not today? If you have become a Christian, but you haven't been true to that Word, if you've allowed compromises in one way or another in your life, come back to your first love, would you? Jesus hasn't given up on you. Don't give up on yourself, but you've got to obey His Word. You need to repent of those sins. You need to, in fact, confess them appropriately. And if we could pray to God on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do it. If today we could be of help to anybody... We would encourage you to come, invite you to come, and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.